So many aspects of the Buddhist teachings about the nature of suffering and the possibility of freedom resonate with our common sense understanding of things, our common sense view of the world and of ourselves. The basic principle of non-harming as the fundamental moral principle of people living together in community, whether locally or globally. This is easy to understand and grasp. The understanding that everything in our life is changing, both inside and outside, and that the more we hold on to or grasp at that which in its nature changes, the more we suffer. That also is easy to understand. There's one aspect of the Buddhist teaching that offers a profoundly different view of the world, different way of understanding. And it's one that challenges our entire world view. And it's this understanding that makes the Buddha's enlightenment such an extraordinary accomplishment in all of the spiritual cultures of awakening. And that is the deep understanding and realization of selflessness, of anatta. The realization of the fundamental insubstantiality of all phenomena. It's this realization which is the great liberating jewel of the Buddha's teachings. As the observing power of our mind becomes stronger, we find that the self is not what we have taken it to be. It's not what we imagine it to be. We find that the body is not self, and thoughts are not self, and emotions are not self, and even awareness itself is not self. We begin to see that this very deeply rooted, deeply conditioned sense of I, sense of self, is a concept. It's a mental construct. It's a fabrication. When we get some glimpses of this, It's both a great surprise because it doesn't fit our common sense view of ourselves. It's both a great surprise and a great relief. Now all of those troubling aspects of one's personality, as well as all the wonderful qualities, they don't actually belong to anyone. They're all simply experiences, appearances, arising out of momentary conditions. One of my favorite (coughs) expressions of the relief that comes from insight into selflessness comes from the Sri Lankan monk who simply said, no self, no problem. So tonight I'd like to speak about 
self and selflessness, and how the mind creates this deeply conditioned concept. Because it's rather paradoxical, given the fact that it's not really there. Why are we holding to the idea of it with such great attachment? It's embedded so deeply in our understanding of what this mind and body is about, of who we are. Well, how does this happen? How does this come about? The Abhidhamma, or Buddhist psychology, gives a very useful framework for understanding this. It starts with a basic definition of the mind. And the mind is that which knows, meaning consciousness. The consciousness of hearing, knowing a sight, knowing a sound, knowing a smell, knowing a taste. When we look into the nature of this knowing mind, when we look into the nature of consciousness itself, we find that it is invisible, there's nothing to see. And it's clear. And it's empty. And it's cognizant. It has a knowing faculty. One Tibetan teacher expressed the nature of mind in a very uh, clear way. He called it, I think this is a traditional Tibetan teaching, he called mind the cognizing power of emptiness. But what we call mind is also something more than just this knowing faculty. In each moment of experience, whether it's a moment of hearing or seeing or thinking or sensing in the body, whatever the experience may be, different mental qualities or different mental factors arise in different combinations and color that particular moment of consciousness. So, for example, greed and hatred and love and joy and happiness and fear and concentration and mindfulness and intention, all of these are particular mental factors, each with their own function, coloring the mind in its own particular way. (coughs) Greed sticks. Greed sticks to the object. Hatred pushes things away. Fear contracts. Love opens. Mindfulness notices. Concentration steadies the mind. Each of these factors function in their own particularly unique way. Some of these factors lead to happiness, and these are called the wholesome factors of mind. Some of these mental factors lead to suffering, and they're called the unwholesome factors. So in this sense, we see that in Buddhism, Ethics is very pragmatic. It's not a question of divine commandments. It's a very pragmatic analysis what leads to genuine happiness, authentic happiness. That's wholesome. What leads to suffering? That's unwholesome. So in that way, we could say that 
all of the Buddha's teachings really is a training in happiness. So there's the natural purity and clarity of consciousness of knowing. There's a wide variety of mental qualities or mental factors, each arising and passing away in each moment. Now there's one particular factor of mind which is common to every moment of experience. It's called a common factor, which when out of balance with the others, keeps us imprisoned in the world of concepts, keeps us imprisoned in the world of mental constructs, keeps us imprisoned in the conventional view of self. And this is the factor which is called perception. Like all the others, perception has a particular function. It works a particular way in our minds. It has the nature to recognize, to name, and to remember what it is that's arising. Perception picks out the distinguishing marks of any experience. It recognizes those distinguishing marks, it names it, and then it stores it in memory. For example, we hear a sound. Consciousness simply knows the sound. Consciousness is simply knowing, knowing the sound. Perception recognizes the sound, names it bird, and then it remembers this word, It stores it in memory and calls it up when we hear that same sound again, when perception recognizes those same unique qualities of that sound. Consciousness simply knows. Perception creates the concept and stores in memory. When perception is balanced with mindfulness, Then it's like putting a frame around a picture which helps focus our attention on the picture itself. That's the purpose of a frame. It focuses our, our attention. And in some way, this is the function of mental noting. Now, when we make a mental note, the note is not mindfulness. The note, the mental note that we make in the mind is the factor of perception It's recognizing what's there, it's creating a concept, it's storing in memory. When it's in balance with mindfulness, the note acts like a frame on the experience. And it's in this sense that perception is one of the conditioning qualities for mindfulness to arise. But it needs to be in the service of direct experience. Otherwise, we just keep on looking at the frame. It's not serving, then, the purpose of liberation. There's a writer named Michael Cunningham, a Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist. He wrote a book called The Hours. This is a couple of lines from the book, which I really love. He says, everything in the world has its own secret name. 
a name that cannot be conveyed in language, but is simply the sight and feel of the thing itself. That's really the description of mindfulness. You know, that connection, the sight and the feel of the thing itself. That's the secret name. Perception offers us the obvious name. When there's perception without mindfulness, which for a good part of the time is our usual way of being in the world. Now we're busy in the world and we're just caught up in the surface recognition, the surface perception of things. We know and remember only the surface appearance. Oh, that's a bird. How often in the busyness of our lives will we take that perception, that concept, and put it in the service of actually hearing the thousand vibrations of sound. Probably not, oh, that's a bird. And so our experience is confined, it's limited, it's dismissed in a certain way. When there's perception without mindfulness, we stay on the superficial recognition of what's happening. We get caught in the world of our concepts about things. And we're not open to the secret name. We're not open to the sight and the feel of the thing in itself. It's difficult to stay open. It's difficult to see things in a new way. Georgia O'Keeffe wrote, Still in a way, nobody sees a flower, really. To see takes time, like to have a friend takes time. We all see the flower through the veil of the concept, oh, that's a flower, even the kind of flower it is, but how many of us really see the flower? She did. There's something quite unique about concepts. It's said in the Buddhist teachings that there are two things which are permanent in the world of experience. And everything's impermanent, but two things. One is Nibbana, the unconditioned, the unborn, the deathless. And the other permanent thing is concepts. Because our word for things doesn't change. Bird yesterday, bird today, bird tomorrow. The experience of what the word is pointing to is changing moment to moment to moment. And yet the concept remains the same. And this is in some way the great danger of not understanding how our mind creates concepts and to really see how they're working. Because if we're not seeing it, then we get caught in the illusion that the experience itself is permanent. This is a powerful conditioning force in our lives, which mostly we are not paying attention to. 
we can see this tendency to both solidify and limit our view of the world through concepts in many areas of our lives. And it sometimes is occurring with very harmful consequences. So it's important that we look at this carefully. I'll mention a few of the concepts of innumerable ones that can play such a powerful role in our lives and often be unnoticed. One is the construct or the concept, the mental fabrication of place. Now we create all kinds of boundaries and divisions in the world. Separate countries and separate states and counties and cities, whatever, whatever division. But the earth doesn't have any boundaries. Now one of the things most remarked on by the astronauts when they first were circling the globe was an almost mystical sense of the unity, the oneness of the earth. Because from that distance, of course, boundaries, national boundaries, didn't mean anything. Just think of of the huge amount of suffering that has come because of attachment to this concept, concept of place. And it goes from you know, the very real suffering that comes from strong nationalism, you know, the wars and the violence, to, it goes down to the level of the ridiculous. Some years ago, <coughs> I was listening to a little report on NPR. It was the sociology of area codes. And the suffering that people were going through when their area code was changed. Because evidently some area codes have more cachet than others. And some friends of mine from Berkeley will tell you, you know, when it went from 415 to 510, they were making all kinds of jokes, you know, five and dime, and <laughs> they were upset. Nothing really changed except the numbers. Everything was exactly the same. It was just a concept that changed. Concepts of place, concepts of ownership. And we have created in our own minds the idea that we own things, that we possess things. And just think of the huge amount of suffering that has come about in the world when we get locked into this concept and not seeing it as our own mental construct. And just think of, in the, the most intense way, of the experience and the legacy of slavery. Just the idea that someone could own another being. You know, and the immense suffering of well, the whole history of colonialism. You know, the one country owned another country, you know, for exploitation. and Horrible things happen because somehow we start believing in the ultimate reality 
of this concept. Yes, this is true, and this is how things should be. Of course, that's on a very big scale. We can see it in a small scale. You know, we may not be exploiting other people because we think we own them, but we get caught in concepts of ownership too, you know, possessiveness. When I first came back from India, I was teaching at Naropa Institute. The, in the first summer it opened in 1974 in Boulder. Um, so I was teaching, they had given me this small one-bedroom apartment. And I was the first among many of my friends from India who had come back to the States, and certainly the first one who had anything resembling a job. So <laughs> I was back and I was teaching. It was pretty... I was teaching a very, very heavy schedule you know, that, that first summer. And slowly over the summer, many of my friends, Sharon and, and others, you know, would come back to the States, have nowhere to go, oh, let's go stay with Joseph you know, in, in Boulder. So one by one, and they were just kind of crashing in my apartment. And one, two, three, four, <laughs> just sleeping in the living room. And at first, I could just feel myself getting very uptight about this. I was really busy. It was, working hard, and all these people were coming to stay with me. But then at a certain point, something uh, clicked in my mind, and I realized that all of the suffering that I was going through came from the notion that the apartment was mine. And as soon as I could let go of that concept, then it simply became a space that we were all sharing, as we had done many times in India. And we had lived in a shared space for years. As soon as I let go of the concept that this was mine, all the suffering dissolved. And then it was just being with friends. So it's just interesting to see how powerfully conditioning concepts can be on the way we live. And just think how it would be if you came into the hall and you found somebody sitting on your cushion. I'll bet there would be a moment. (laughs) It goes deep. Concepts of place, concepts of ownership, a very pervasive concept, one that conditions our lives in countless ways and often creating a lot of suffering, is the concept we've created of time, of past and future. You know, and you've had now many weeks to observe how this happens in the mind. You're sitting and certain thoughts come of memories, recollections, reminiscences. You know, these thoughts or images come. The mind immediately, through past habit, you know, through habit, sees these thoughts or images, puts the concept past onto it, and then imagines the past as being somewhere back there, you know, some reality back there. We do the same with future. We have certain thoughts, anticipating, planning, imagining. And these are certain thoughts that are happening. Out of habit we create, and very quickly, it's not a conscious pudding, but we're just seeing it in this way. We're creating a concept future and imagining that it's a reality out there in front of us, waiting for us. But really, when you look 
at what's happening, it's simply the arising of a thought in the moment. And this, I'm not talking, this is not a kind of metaphysical uh, exposition on the nature of time. What I'm talking about, rather in a very pragmatic way, is how we experience past and future. And the only way we experience past and future is as a thought in the present moment. But the concepts, past and future, are huge. We are carrying these concepts on our shoulders. They're like mountains which we carry. They're either weighed down by whatever our past may be, weighed down by anticipation, excitement, worry, anxiety, whatever, about the future. The concepts weigh very heavily in our lives. When we see through the concept to the experience, we see that a thought in the moment is very light. It's very light. It's almost weightless. Just as a simple example, which you can, you probably have experienced already and you can continue to investigate, pay particular attention to whatever time thoughts you have about being on retreat and notice how they condition your experience. You're sitting, the thought comes, oh, three more weeks or two more months. If I have to watch my breath for two more months, I can't do this. This is too much. And the thought, you know, you just get discouraged and depressed and tired. What just happened? It was just a thought. It was just a thought in the moment. If you see it as a thought, it's no problem. It arises and passes. If you invest, believe in the whole conceptual framework, create, oh, future, all this time, so many breaths. Of course it's exhausting. (laughs) Or it can be the other way. You know, maybe you're having a really great sitting and you think, oh, only three more weeks, only two more months. Wish I could be here for ten years. It's the same thing. And it's not only past and future. that creates a conceptual weight. We can also create, and this is, I mean, if we could see this, this is really liberating. Also see that we create the concept of the present. That present, the present moment, is a concept. And even though so much of the teaching is about being the present moment and connecting the present moment, that's you know, a skillful means to kind of get us here. But we need to go beyond, get through even the concept of the present. So we don't become fixated or attached to this moment. And this was expressed very clearly in the Dhammapada, where the Buddha said, let go of the past. Before I, before I continue... As I read this, please do it. 
That's how we should be hearing the teachings. I mean, these are really instructions from the Buddha. They're, they're saying, this is how to awaken. It's not theory. It's not philosophy. He's saying, this is how to do it. Let go of the past. Let go of the future. Let go of the present. And cross over to the further shore. With the mind wholly liberated, you go beyond birth and death. So in a fundamental way, this is our practice. Seeing how our minds creates the concept, past and future and even present, we can let go of the concept. And then it really is abiding in timelessness. Concepts of place, of ownership, of time. We have a lot of concepts about self-images. You know, our roles in the world, how we present ourselves to ourselves and to others. As soon as we identify with any role, with any self-image, with any concept of who we are, it is already a limitation. It's already a prison. An image that always comes to mind when I think of this is goes back to when I was a kid in summer camp, you know, pouring these plaster of Paris, plaster of Paris into molds. I don't know if you did that or not, but you know, you have these kind of rubber or plastic molds, and you just poured the plaster of Paris, and it hardens. Then you take the tap it out of the mold, and you have some figure. Well, a self-image is like that. It's like pouring ourselves into a mold. And then we wonder why we feel constrained in our lives. And again, have long-lasting consequences. One mold that I've been carrying for a long time and struggling to get out of is this concept that I have that I can't really sing. Starting with my third grade teacher, singing teacher told me, Joseph just mouthed the words. (laughs) This was reinforced, of course, many times over the years by some of my dearest and closest friends. (laughs) Joseph just mouthed the words. Well, at that first summer, or maybe it was the second summer at Naropa, there was somebody offering a course in, they called it the natural voice. You know, I thought, this is a kind of new age, Buddhist, you know, okay, this is going to be my big chance to step out. So it was great. You know, there was a great teacher and just had us all singing and it was terrific. And then one day the teacher was sick and there was a kind of substitute teacher. And there was this woman who was teaching Balkan folk singing. And what she had us do, she had us, you know, line up in a circle, and then she would sing some note, and one by one, we had to sing it back to her. <laughs> I knew I was in big trouble, and this whole 
self-image concept immediately came into play. I'll never be able to do this. And sure enough, I mean, she got to me, she sang this note, I sang something back. (laughs) It wasn't even in the ballpark. (laughs) And she was this very persistent woman. (laughs) She was going to stay right there till... (laughs) So we're going back and forth. And I was just totally imprisoned. Any chance I had of just having it come spontaneously was completely not a possibility because of this very heavy self-image I had. You know, I can't do this, I can't sing. The, the happy conclusion to that story was finally that the regular teacher came into the class, I don't know, he came in late or something, and he saw what was happening. And then just in this really kind way, he kind of listened to where I was, and then he'd sing a note just a little higher, and then I'd sing that a little higher, a little higher, and kind of led me up to it. <laughs> <laughs> you know how many how many self images do you carry around good yogi bad yogi and these are spiritual self images you have a good sitting you know the mind is concentrated and clear and you know maybe you sit a little longer mm. I'm a really good yogi and then the next sitting or the next day, the mind's completely restless and you're full of pain and you, you, know, you can't sit still. I'm such a terrible yogi, I can't do this. And it just goes back and forth and back and forth. Both are just concepts. They're just images. Can we let go of all of that? Can we just see through it? Not get caught, not be so identified. Concepts become limiting even about things that seem more fundamental than self-image. Concepts about things, things like age or gender or race or culture. You know, this seems, this seems real. This seems, okay, self-image may be just a mental construct, but age is not, race is not, culture is not. What color is your mind? How old is your breath? Is the pain in your back male or female? Is anger or love or joy or fear? Is that American, Burmese, German, Australian? No. All of these are just the fundamental elements of experience common to us all. And it's not to say that the concepts don't point to differences in experience, because clearly they do. But we often become so identified and attached to the concept and solidifying our sense of self in them, sense of who we are and who others are. You know, I'm this, you are that. This is how the world plays out. When we don't connect with the fundamental underlying realities, underneath all of these concepts, we simply force the conflict and divisiveness. Now all the immense social 
difficulties and inequities, you know, whether it's racism or sexism or ageism or injustice stemming from imperialism or colonialism, whatever, all of it really can be traced back to otherism. It's just the sense of self and other. This brings us to the deepest conditioning we have, the most deeply rooted concept, which really has become invisible to us. It's so much of how we have been conditioned to see ourselves and see the world. And it's the root source of so much suffering. It's the source of otherism and all the conflict that comes from that. And this is the attachment we have to the concept of self. The very concept of self predicates other. This is the idea, the mental construct that we've created, of there being someone behind all experience, to whom it's all happening. We have created a reference point and then call that mental creation self. So how does this happen? How is it happening now? We become attached and identified with the idea of self, with the concept of self, because we're relying on a very superficial perception, a very superficial recognition of what is there. You know, we get up in the morning, we look in the mirror, we recognize a familiar pattern, familiar appearance. We create a concept designating what we see Oh yeah, that's Joseph, that's self, that's me. We're not doing this consciously, but that's the process that's going on. We're creating a concept about what we're seeing, concept of self, concept of I. And then we rest on that level of perception. We generally don't look deeper, don't look to see what's really there, what's underneath. So I'll just give a few examples. And one of one of my favorite examples for this is that of a rainbow. You know, you go outside after a rainstorm and conditions are right, a rainbow appears in the sky, we see it, we have a moment of delight in seeing it. Oh look, there's a rainbow. But when we look more carefully, when we go beyond the concept, we see that rainbow is not a thing in itself. It's not a self-existing reality. A rainbow is an appearance due to certain conditions of light, of moisture, of air. These conditions come together, rainbow appears. Conditions change, rainbow disappears. I saw this in Hawaii once really clearly by a, a blowhole you know, where the water <coughs> shoots up, uh, kind of there's like an under cave open to the surf with a 
hole in the top. And then the surf comes in and the water shoots up like a geyser. Conditions are right. There was a rainbow. The water falls away. The rainbow disappeared. Water shoots up again. Another rainbow falls away. Disappears. Shoots up again. A cloud covered the sun. No rainbow. It's not that the rainbow is an existing thing. It's an appearance arising out of appropriate conditions. It doesn't mean that we don't see what we see. We do see all those beautiful colors. And it's fine to call it a rainbow. But we want to look deeper than the concept. So that we see it for what it actually is. And this is the meaning of vipassana. Seeing things as they are. Now, how much of our sense of self comes from a superficial perception of the body? It seems so solid, so me. I mean, this really seems like me. Yet when we observe it closely, not just superficially, not when we just create a, yeah, that's, that's my body. We see, when we look at it closely, we see that the body is a composite of many interrelated systems. And you can look on it on a lot of different levels of, you know, muscular system, a skeletal system, a nervous system, a circulatory system, or all the organs. From that perspective, it's really not that attractive. And just imagine how you would be relating to your own and other people's bodies if you had x-ray vision. Oh, beautiful. (laughs) We probably wouldn't have quite the same attachment we have to our own bodies or other people's bodies. We probably would not have such a fear of death. We could look even deeper than those systems, you know, on the cellular level or the atomic level, to the level where it's really mostly empty space. And we have this experience in practice. You know, as the concentration gets deeper and the mindfulness steady, we begin to experience the body just as an energy field. There's nothing solid there at all. I'd like to read a couple of stories about Deepama, you know, this teacher of ours from India who is this extraordinary woman and yogi. In case you're still under the illusion that the body is some solid you, you know, she was, had extraordinary attainment, both in Vipassana and stages of enlightenment, but also you know, in samadhi, concentration, and all the psychic powers, and she was this totally amazing woman. So this, this is from a book that Amy Schmidt has written, Collecting Stories About Deepama. It's called Knee Deep in Grace. She was telling about stories of some of the things she could do. Changing de- denser elements to air produced only slightly less ast- astonishing occurrences. Sometimes Deepama and her sister arrived for interviews with Munindra, who was also my first teacher, 
by spontaneously appearing in his room, and Deepama occasionally left by walking through the closed door. If she was feeling especially playful, she might rise from her chair, go to the nearest wall, and walk right through it. Deepama learned to cook food by making the fire element come out of her hands. She could also change the earth element into the water element, which she demonstrated to Munindra by diving into a patch of ground and emerging with her clothes and hair wet. Deepama's abilities in this regard were once tested and confirmed by a third party. Munindra knew a professor of ancient Indian history at Magad University who was skeptical about psychic powers. Munindra offered to prove the existence of such powers, and the two of them set up an experiment. The professor posted a trusted graduate student in a room where Deepama was meditating to watch and make sure she didn't leave the room. On the appointed day, the student verified that Deepama never left her meditation posture, and yet, at the very same time, she appeared at the professor's office ten miles away and had a conversation with him. So I read that not to suggest that that's the point of our practice. (laughs) I mean, it's much easier just to open the door and walk through it. (laughs) However, it does point what is this body that we feel is so solid and so me and so attached to? There are so many levels of experience you know, when we can let go of the concept that we create and we open ourselves to whole different realms of possibility, of experience. How much of our sense of self comes when we're lost in and identified with thoughts and emotions, you know, with the internal stories we tell them? about ourselves and about the world. And often these stories are based on concepts that aren't even true. How many judgments or feelings have you had (coughs) about other people on the retreat in the course of these weeks? And you, you might not even know them, but it doesn't stop the mind from making up stories, from creating concepts. At one point, I was on retreat here at IMS, and I was online for lunch, and there was a Westerner who had ordained as a Korean nun. And as is the custom here, when there's an ordained person, they usually uh, they go first online for food. So this nun was first, and I was second. And so I'm just waiting, you know, with a line of people behind me for her to go through and take the food. And this one day I saw she, she's carrying two plates, you know, and she's really moving slowly and, you know, loading up one plate and then loading up another plate. And the thought's going, through, what's going on? She's a nun. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Isn't that a little bit excessive? <laughs> Yeah, she's going from part to part, loading this place, load, and I'm getting more and more impaired. Okay, let's get to move on. <laughs> and I'm having all kinds of judgmental thoughts about this poor woman. And finally she gets through the line, and then I see she slowly walks over, and on that retreat uh, there was one yogi who was blind. 
and she was just taking collecting the food for this blind yogi. So you can imagine how I felt when I <laughs> when I saw that. But it was also very instructive. Here, I, my mind was just making up this whole story. It had nothing to do with reality in any way, and I was getting into it. I was believing it. We get lost in the mind world of our own mental creations. We're getting lost in the world of our mental constructs. It's like being lost in the story of a movie, forgetting that it's a movie. One of Munindra's favorite lines, which used a lot, the thought of your mother is not your mother. It's a thought. And you could say the thought of whatever is not whatever. It's just a thought. But when mindfulness is not balancing perception, we don't see that, and we get lost in the concept of it. Emotions also don't belong to anyone. Each emotion also simply arises out of conditions, expressing its own nature. Love loves, and fear fears, and joy joys, and anger angers. And it's not that they belong to anyone. These emotions are arising when the conditions are present for them to arise. They arise, they do their thing, and then they disappear. But because we often are not seeing them in this way, we get identified with them. We create the story of this being who we are. This is me. This is myself. It's interesting to see, and you can do this very well on retreat, to see how often emotions are conditioned by a particular thought. You know, we're just going along, a thought comes in the mind, and if it's unnoticed or we're not mindful of it as just a thought, the thought can condition a whole emotional reaction. And I've had so many examples of this. And it's interesting. It's just, it's really interesting to say. One time I was, I was walking around the loop, and I was, pretty, I was pretty mindful, paying attention. And this thought came up about, like, <clears throat> I don't remember exactly what it was, but I think it was about some meeting that was going to happen that I was anticipating some conflict at. And I was just what the thought came into my mind of this meeting, so that's already future, and then anticipating conflict. Thought came, and in the moment, thought came, and I could feel my whole body flood with the feelings of that emotion. And I was fascinated by that. I said, what just happened? So then, and because I was, I was pretty mindful, you know, the thing dissipated pretty quickly. But I was so interested, I kind of did it again on purpose. <laughs> you know, and, and so again, I kind of called the thought up because I wanted to see. And sure enough, you know, the thought kept, and that... The thought, the emotion, is not self. It's not I. 
the thought arose out of certain conditions, the thought conditioned the emotion. It doesn't mean we don't feel the emotions. It means that we stay open to them, but are with them in a place of freedom. Now the most subtle level of creating a concept or a sense of I is the identification with awareness itself, with knowing. Now we create a sense of the witness or the observer, separate from experience. So even when we're understanding the selfless nature of the body and thoughts and emotions, still we can get caught in this very subtle place where we are the one knowing all of these things. One technique which I've used and have mentioned often on retreats, and I suggest just you experiment if you like, as a way of beginning to cut that identification with knowing. And that is to reframe the concept that we use, because the concept, the perception, conditions how we see things. I found it very helpful to reframe my concept of what was happening in the passive voice. And what I mean is walking, doing walking meditation, and just being with the experience, the sensations being known, or a sound being known, a thought being known, rather than I'm hearing the sound, I'm feeling the sensation. When we put it in the passive voice of things being known, we're taking the I out of it. And it really opens us to the possibility of the experience of awareness without any identification. Even now, just for a moment or two, you know, breathing in and out, it's just the breath being known. Then, of course, comes the question, known by what? And that's the great exploration of the nature of mind. The Buddha gave a very simple and powerful teaching to his son Rahula, pointing to the direct experience of selflessness. And I found it to be a, it's like a mantra of liberation. It's a mantra of selflessness. The Buddha said that every aspect of mind and body should be seen as it is with proper wisdom. This is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. So I find these words a useful reminder in going through the practice and going through the day, whatever is arising, occasionally reminding oneself, this is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. And watching in that moment of reminding oneself this, what happens in the mind. So it's not the words as philosophy, again, it's the words as instruction. This is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. 
applied to thoughts, applied to emotions, applied to sensations, applied to sounds, applied to everything. When we balance perception with strong mindfulness, we see through the concepts, however useful they may be, and they're often useful, or however subtle they may be, when we balance the perception with strong mindfulness, then we see through the concepts to the direct experience itself. We see through to the secret name of things. And through this growing realization of selflessness, we develop a deepening sense of connection. We no longer need to strive for or rely on certain particular forms of relationship to feel connected, which is often how we're operating in our lives. We think we need a particular kind of relationship to be connected. But as we touch the truth of anatta, of selflessness, we see we don't need to rely on that because we see there is no longer anyone there to be separate. Kala Rinpoche summed this up so well. He said, being nothing, you are everything. That is all. So in this sense, love and selflessness become the same thing. Sit for a couple of minutes. Sounds being known, the breath being known. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.